Welcome to Church Life Today, the show where we interview scholars and pastoral leaders throughout the United States on issues that matter most to the church today. I'm Tim O'Malley, Director of Education at the McGrath Institute for Church Life. Today, I welcome to the show Brett Robinson, a colleague of mine who is also the Director of Communications at the McGrath Institute. He will be interviewing Nicholas Carr, an author and journalist of technological themes. We hosted Nicholas Carr for a conference in March of 2018 titled Cultures of Formation in Preparation of the 2018 Synod of Bishops on Young People. Welcome to Church Life Today. My name is Brett Robinson. I'm sitting in for Tim O'Malley, and today we're talking to Nicholas Carr. Nick is a journalist by trade. He's the author of the acclaimed book, The Glass Cage, How Our Computers Are Changing Us, 2014, which examines the personal and social consequences of our ever-growing dependency on computers, robots, and apps. His previous work, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, was a 2011 Pulitzer Prize finalist and a New York Times bestseller. Carr has written for The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Wired, Nature, and MIT Technology Review, among others. His essays, including Is Google Making Us Stupid and The Great Forgetting, have been featured in several anthologies, including the best American science and nature writing. We're pleased to have Nick with us today. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. So I came to your work through the article in The Atlantic, Is Google Making Us Stupid? And for those who maybe haven't read your work, could you tell us a little bit about what was going on there, especially at that time, around that question? Yeah, so as it happens, I was writing that article, I guess, exactly 10 years ago, uh, in 2008, and it ultimately came out in the summer. Um, And I had been, by by that time, I had been a writer... Um, about technology and about media for for quite a number of years and a big aficionado of, of computers, big user of uh, personal computers and, and the web. Um, and, and as I was writing a book before, the, before that, um, a book called The Big Switch, it, it struck me that I was having trouble <laughs> concentrating. Uh, you know, maintaining my attention for a long period of time. I, I particularly noticed it when I when I was reading. Um, you know, something that used to that for most of my life had come naturally to me, but I, w- I was struggling keeping my attention fixed on the page for a long period of time. And I and I noticed that what what seemed to be going on is that my my mind wanted to behave the way it behaved way it behaved when I was looking at a computer screen when I was online. It wanted lots of stimulus, lots of sources of different information, the ability to jump from one thing to the next as we do when we click links and stuff. And so that that essay kind of started out as a as a personal essay about my experience and how and how I be, how I came to the conclusion that the internet and Google um, were actually changing the way I was thinking, uh, and we're making it through all the distractions and interruptions that were pushed through the computer screen, kind of were making it more and more difficult for me to be contemplative and reflective and uh, to, to, to be attentive. And, and then, 
you know, the more I looked into the science, the more I became convinced that this could well be true and it might have a broader impact on society and culture than just my own experience. You talked in that article and, and then in The Shallows, which extends this theme about uh, neuroplasticity. Can you talk a little bit about what, what neuroplasticity is? Yeah. So, you know, one of the one of the immediate questions I had is, you know, can our use of a technology, of a tool like the Internet or anything else, can it really deeply influence the way our brain works? And that took me to the study of uh, neuroplasticity. Excuse me. <clears throat> So neuroplasticity is what brain scientists, cognitive psychologists and brain scientists um, refer, call the brain's ability to adapt to the environment in which we're in, in which we're doing our thinking. Um, and it turns out the brain is very malleable, uh, the human brain, that at a biological level, at a cellular level, it's changing all the time, all through our entire lives. Um, and it's adapting, it's kind of optimizing itself to the way we're called upon to think in the world. And this was, uh, this was discovered really recently, 1960s, 1970s. Up until then, it was assumed that the human brain was malleable when you were young, and then when you hit about the age of 20, that was it. It, it was fixed, so you couldn't change at a biological level, your brain. Turns out that, that that was incorrect. And our brains are always adapting. And so I think one, in general, that's a good quality. It means we are adaptable and, and we can deal with new things uh, cognitively quite, quite rapidly. But I think my concern is that, that we also are quite, we can adapt quite easily to forms of thought that aren't as valuable as the ones we're leaving behind. And I think as we spend more and more time uh, looking into computer screens and now looking into phone screens, smartphone screens, we're training our, not only training our brain to be distracted um, and to jump from one thing to another rather than focusing on one thing, but we're beginning to weave that in through this change of habits and the change of the environment around us, we're weaving that very deeply into the very structure of our brains. Um, and I don't want to be alarmist about that, but, but I do think that when that happens, it becomes more and more difficult to be attentive and to be thoughtful and, and to be contemplative, even when you're not in front of a computer, even when you're not, you know, using your smartphone. So, so it, it kind of our brain optimizes itself for this environment of constant distraction. So in a way, you're not, you're not talking about the content we're consuming. You're talking about the form of the medium actually having a psychological shaping effect. That's right, and that's a you know that's a theme in media media scholars, people who <laughs> who study uh, technologies and particularly media technologies have. Uh, have kind of, have made that argument for quite a long time since back in the days of television. Uh, Marshall McLuhan, for instance, in the 1960s, famous media theorist, uh, came up with the phrase, the medium is the message, by which he meant that the content of, of the media we use, whether it's radio or television or newspapers or printed books or the internet, that's very important, obviously, but actually it's 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 secondary to the effects that the technology it's, itself has 
on our consciousness and on our mind. And I think among folks in the church, there's this sense that we do need those times to concentrate, to contemplate. And so in a way, this is a challenge to that or a direct challenge to that sort of disposition. Um, The idea that we could spread the gospel or spread religious messages through these new media, which is a great opportunity, um, is in some ways hindered by the fact that the medium has some deleterious effects on how we pay attention. Right. You have to be... <laughs> I think what this underscores is is you just you can't just assume that sending out a message through whatever medium is going to have the same effect on the person who receives the message. It, and certainly, certainly if... If you assume that any kind of that that religious thinking and religious feeling or spiritual thinking and spiritual feeling in general hinges on the ability to be contemplative uh, to some degree, then I think you have to worry about these kind of effects, about training people to be to to crave kind of constant distraction constant new bits of information so the message you send out <laughs> through the media may be uh maybe an important message in in a message that feels like it's you know um reinforcing uh, a religious viewpoint or whatever viewpoint but actually the effect as it as that as that message is is transformed and becomes this part this one element in this stream of nonstop messages, you could actually be undermining the intent of the message by the medium uh, because you're you're dissuading people or disencouraging people, discouraging people from being, you know, reflective and introspective and contemplative. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio, and we're talking to Nicholas Carr, who is the author of the Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. His new book is Utopia is Creepy. Um, could you talk a little bit about what's happening there? I mean, I think there's a lot of, uh, especially out of Silicon Valley, this idea that uh, technology is um, creating this new and better and brighter society. Um, and yet there seem to be, as you're outlining in your remarks about uh, the brain and attention, there seems to be sort of a downside to this as well. Can you talk a little bit about Utopia's Creepy? Yeah. Um, you know, in in doing my research about how the internet and computers and smartphones influences, and I, I think in a in a damaging way, the way our mind works, it it became immediately clear that my message, <laughs> my conclusions ran directly counter to what uh, the promises that were coming out of Silicon Valley, which tend to be these very utopian promises about computer technology, that you know uh, everything in society and culture up until the arrival of the internet was somehow insufficient or inherently um, bad or inherently flawed. I guess is is the best way to put it. In that. The computer, by being this incredibly powerful processor and communicator of information, would solve all of these problems. Um, and what's become clear, and, and I think now it's extended beyond you know, the question of, of the way the technology can undermine our thinking and our presence of mind, to how, you know, looking at 
examples of polarization in society and people people unable people with different viewpoints being unable to have conversations and so forth what we're seeing is that the the utopia that was promised to us by silicon valley is not the place that most of us really <laughs> would want to live in and yet this is what we're creating for ourselves we're creating this new digital environment that increasingly um, is the place in which we think and we act, and it's having all sorts of effects, but a lot of them are quite negative ones. Um, so th this latest book, which is a kind of collection of essays and stuff, is a critique of not only the Silicon Valley kind of overly sunny view of technology, but a critique of utopian thinking in general. We're talking to Nicholas Carr on Church Life Today best-selling author on topics related to technology and culture. And Nick, the Silicon Valley culture seems to be shifting in some ways as you're describing sort of the utopian hopes of its maybe earlier days. Um, I've noticed lately anyway that many of the executives are starting to do things like wisdom retreats and sending their children to Waldorf schools where there is no technology. Do you sense maybe a shift in conscience there that maybe they're even seeing some of these effects and starting to make corrections in their own lives? I do. And one of the reasons is I, th I think it's become harder and harder to deny some of these negative consequences of our dependence on technology and children's dependence on technology. Um, so we're seeing at many levels, I think, and I think this is constructive, the, the, the destruction of that, the view that Technol everything computer technology touched would be improved by the technology. Um, and so we see that, we see there, there's this growing, I'm not sure how big the movement is, but the growing number of apostates in Silicon Valley, people who used to work for Google and Facebook and designed you know, some of these apps, designed, uh, wrote the algorithms, who are now coming forward and who have really deep and I, I think heartfelt regrets about what, how these products that they developed are influencing society and influencing people at a personal level and in influencing young people um, and are really, you know, you know, saying that we, because we bought into this myth of how this had to be a good thing, we didn't think it was bad that we create we design these things to be addictive and design these things to, in very, very kind of detailed ways, to kind of make people compulsive users of their phone and of their apps and of social media. And now we're starting to realize that that we've, we've, we have created this sort of monster. And, and the question is, you know, how, how can we control this? Can, can we actually change it now that it's been very deeply integrated into people's norms of behavior, their expectations, and, and even into the you know, fundamental processes that, that uh, govern how society works. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We're talking to Nicholas Carr, author of, among other books on technology and culture, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. And I wanted to talk for just a second, Nick, or ask you about uh, this notion of, of the, the brain, but also uh, the body. So I, I've heard you in other interviews say that, um, quote Marlowe Ponty, who says, the body is our means of having a world. And 
for our listeners, um, particularly our Catholic listeners, this is a, a very incarnational sentiment by Merleau-Ponty. Could you speak a little bit about that idea of the body being the way we have our world and not just the mind? Yeah, and th- this comes out of uh, the research I did for another book uh, that I wrote called The Glass Cage, which is about automation, um, which, which I broadly define as, as these days using a computer or computer software or robots or whatever to do things we used to do ourselves. Um, and this became, this subject became of interest to me kind of as a natural outgrowth of my, my investigation of how the technology influence our, influences our minds and our cognition. What I, what I began to see is that more and more we're at a very personal level, um, we're relying on our phones, the apps on our phones or on our computers to do a lot, not only of the thinking, but of the acting that we used to do in the world. So take, for instance, just how we get around navigating, whether we're driving or walking. More and more people today will pull out their phone, (laughs) put their destination into Google Maps or GPS system and get turn by turn directions. and what that does is you you begin to get you begin to rely on the computer and the software rather than on your own senses to get an idea of the world of the space around you and how to get from one place to another <clears throat> and it seems to me that that is really one example of a very broad trend of how we're more and more retreating from a direct sensory engagement with the world, figuring things out for ourselves, making sense of the natural world or the, the social world or whatever, and instead kind of launching an app on our phone or on our computer and allowing that app to make these decisions and take these actions for us. And it does seem to me that this is a very dangerous um, very dangerous phenomenon. On the one hand, you can see why people are quick to become dependent on their phones because they get this, either the reality or an illusion of convenience. You can do things very quickly. You don't have to think. You don't have to struggle. You don't have to face challenges. But what we know about ourselves, I think, is that a lot of our sense of satisfaction as human beings comes from engaging with the world and coming up against resistance in the world and challenges in the world and figuring out how to overcome them. That's how we develop our own skills, our own talents. Um, and it's that sense of achievement, I think, that that really does represent or account for a lot of our sense of fulfillment in life. So we're, we're kind of trading off an engagement, a deep engagement with the world, whether cognitively or manually or whatever, for the ease and convenience of the computer. But at the same time, when we do that, we're sacrificing these sources of human flourishing and human fulfillment that only come uh, when you use your senses, when you develop your own abilities. Would you say that's connected to, I I think another observation you've made is, is related to our cultural heritage. So we have things in our history, in our heritage, whether it's in a family or in a community, physical objects that we can point to. I think of family photo albums that have now made their way to the phone. And so there is a different sensory experience of, of having that memory or, or, or talking about that heritage. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yes, and maybe not definitively, but <laughs> I do think, it, and, and, and I certainly see this, you know, I, I think your example of photographs is a, is a very much a relevant and pertinent one because, I, you know, like many, many people, I've switched from uh, going and having, you know, taking film from a camera and having prints made and then maybe putting those prints in a book, a f- book of photographs and flipping through it to taking pictures with a digital camera or with your phone and just uploading them to your computer, maybe. Um, and and, and they, they do, it seems to me that you get a lot more pictures, but they, they lose some of their value or some of their meaning for you. And I do think that is something that we see in general, the difference between digital representations of objects of things, which is more and more what we're dealing with in the actual things and objects um, themselves, which you, you know, you tend to, and I think a lot of it comes down to the the richness of your sensory engagement with things. Um, you know, if it's, if it's on a computer screen, it tends to be all what your, your eyes are, are seeing and there's no tactile reality. Uh, sound, smell, those type of things go away. Um, and, and so I think there is, because we are, you know, we are creatures of the earth who, who kind of have developed and evolved to be a part of this physical world. When we are removed from it, it takes something very, very important away from us. And also, as you, as you touched on, I think it also, it also begins to undermine our memory of of things um, when we can just call information or photos or whatever up very very quickly on a computer screen. Um, it tends to weaken the memories that we form of those things, and I and I think there at this point there's quite good scientific evidence that that is actually happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you weaken that kind of memory formation, I think you. It not, it not only has cognitive effects, but also emotional effects as well. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We're talking to Nicholas Carr, author of several books on technology and culture, including The Big Switch and The Glass Cage, Automation and Us. I wanted to ask you, given your background in literature, if there are any stories, authors, science fiction narratives that you might recommend to our listeners to sort of give us a different perspective on this. And what I mean by that is I've been reading a lot of Wendell Berry lately, and this is a author who speaks a lot about kind of pastoral life and community on the farm and sort of being tied to the land that you were just talking about, the physicalness of nature. Um, are there other stories that can kind of give us a vision of an alternate reality than the one we're kind of living in? Well, what, it's funny that as I <clears throat> was writing the book, The Glass Cage, about automation, I I kept coming back to uh, a poem, a short poem, a sonnet by Robert Frost that's titled Mowing, and it's about a person cutting grass, uh, written you know around 1900, I think, when he was quite young. Um, and it seems to me that it was very psychologically perceptive, that it's all about the physical act of mowing a lawn, mowing a a field of hay uh, with a scythe, um, and how that 
begins to connect you um, to the world in in a in a way that goes far far beyond you know what you can far beyond your productivity in a in in, in that might be measured by bales of hay. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of a lot of literature, um, whether it's novels or poems or, or essays. Emerson, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, is another one I'd recommend. That that kind of delves into the importance of having this rich attachment to an engagement in the physical world, um, and how all sorts of <laughs> Uh, good things, emotional, cognitive, interpersonal, come from that kind of engagement. Um, so I think there's no shortage of um, of writers who who have felt that um, and, and can be quite educational to read. I'd like to thank all our listeners for joining this conversation today with Nicholas Carr, a fascinating discussion about technology and culture. Nicholas Carr's latest book is Utopia is Creepy, and we thank him for joining us. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. My pleasure.